Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here. It's good to see Jewel. I haven't seen you in so long. <laughs> it's pretty nice to see you. No, <laughs> no eight ball. Well, we've got uh, we've got a lot of work to do this morning, as you can see. I believe in quantity. Um, as I like to say, quantity has a quality all its own. So if you have a study sheet, you're probably wondering, I wonder when lunch is. I wonder if Pete knows when lunch is. But we'll get through it. It's actually going to go really fast. So all those scripture references, I'm not expecting you to get blisters flipping your Bibles back and forth. I'll be reading them to you. But I did leave you those scripture references so that if you want to take them home and verify that I'm not just making this up, that would be a good thing. Be a Berean, you know, study the word, be diligent. So, um, unfortunately, as is my custom, I like people to stand as we read the word of God. So I'm going to ask you to get up one more time. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5, the last part, um, chapter 5, verse 13 and 16 here. I'm reading from the ESV. And Jesus spoke to the disciples here. He said, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city on the hill can't be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others that they can see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Father, thanks for this word. Thanks for preparing this stuff for us and preparing our hearts. We just pray that this time would be fruitful for your kingdom and that uh, it would be instructive, every one of us, especially me. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you don't have to get up anymore. So, as you all know, we're in unprecedented times. Everybody keeps using that word, unprecedented. I would like it to be banned here for forever. I'd like to say we're in historic times. This is uh, like nothing else we would ever see again. In this nation in particular, nothing like this has ever happened before. Um, We're at a pivotal point. And I'm not just talking about government and the church. I'm talking about our nation as a whole, the character of its people. I listened to Tim Whitey teaching from uh, Ephesians, and he was teaching actually from uh, a passage from a a minister from the 1790s who spoke about the apostasy, the drunkenness, the lack of morality, the craziness that was occupying the country. This after the first Great Awakening, before the second Great Awakening in this nation. And I'll tell you, it sounds like times weren't much different for them, except they didn't have the Internet. Yeah, drunkenness abounded. Women couldn't walk the streets. It was unsafe. Uh, There was no one good. And yet, the church came alive. There was a revival that swept the nation, and it transformed people's lives, and it changed this nation forever. So this is not the end for us. But we need to wake up. I'll be frank with you. We need to wake up and realize who we really are. So this series that I'm teaching on is convicting to me because... In the world, we are salt and light, and we need to understand what that means. We didn't ask to be that. We can't request it. He said it. We are. So this is a series that's going to start with this concept, but it's based on the idea and the concept 
that it's not we personally who are great, but it's God in us. It's Jesus Christ living in us. And so we need to understand the very character of God. And that's why it's truth and love and obedience. And we're going to go into that in detail later. But today we're going to try to sweep through here and get just a general concept of what we're doing. But today we're going to talk about our blind spots. And we all have blind spots, I'll be frank with you. Um, first kind of blind spots in your outline there would be the kind that, well, you just can't see. For example, when you get up to go to the restroom at night and you're stumbling around and your toes are saying, hey, turn on the light switch. <laughs> but no, your brain is saying, no, you know the way around. You, you know where everything is and your toes are saying, no, dude, turn on the light switch. And then you bang your toe into that object that you put there on the way to the bathroom and your toes are saying, I told you so. That's one thing you can't see. I mean, it's dark. You don't know, right? There's another kind of blindness we face, and that's the stuff that we just really didn't see. Um, you know, sometimes we get focused. Um, as some of you know, I, I joined the fire district some time ago, and I volunteer with the ambulance, and I get to go on calls where things are kind of exciting. And just the other day, there was an accident up here next to JMT, and I got there, and I'd been listening the entire time to try to piece together in my head on the radio, what's going on? How many injured? Do I need to ride in the ambulance, or should I just be there to direct traffic? I'm trying to figure this out, and as I arrived, I'm slowly examining the scene, just taking it in, taking my time, putting on my gloves, and I'm walking across the street, and I walk past two patients that are being cared for, talk with a caregiver, look at the next patient, I go to that patient, I walk right past this vehicle, it's kind of over the bank, and the whole time I was just thinking about patients. I just figured, well, I'm patient care today, we have a command, we have ambulances coming, I'll just ride on the ambulance. And then I heard someone say, yeah, let's get a hose on that. I heard someone yell out, yeah, charge the line. The car I just walked by was still running in the ditch in four-foot-tall grass. I had no idea. I didn't know. And I missed it. I just didn't see it. Law enforcement types and emergency responders can identify with that. We get kind of tunnel vision. We just kind of look for the things we're used to seeing or the things we expect. But that's just didn't see it. That's something where you just can't really unengage your brain enough to see everything that's going on and cognitively take it in. But then there's another kind of not seeing, and that's what we're talking about today. And that kind of seeing would be, um, well, it's kind of like this older couple. They've been married about 70 years. Um, they enjoyed life. They didn't fight much. They really didn't fight at all. Uh, they got along great. Their kids turned out perfect, of course, right? And then one day, the lady got sick, and it wasn't looking good. And in their entire life together, because they never fought, they didn't keep secrets. They talked about everything. But she had one secret, and that was a shoebox in her closet that she told him from their first day of marriage, don't open that shoebox. Don't even ask about it. But here on this day, as she's laying in bed, she says, bring me the shoebox. So he does. And she opens it for him. And she says, I want you to see this. And inside, there's two little crocheted dolls. Amazing, beautiful little dolls. One of them was almost complete, not quite. And then there was wads of money and rubber bands, maybe thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars in rubber bands. And so she says, this was what my grandma told me on her wedding day. She said, 
if you want to have a harmonious marriage, if you don't want to fight, if you want to, to really enjoy your marriage, what you need to do is whenever your husband hurts you or you get angry with him, you need to stop and crochet a doll. Just crochet. And, and take some time and don't say anything. And that's what I did, she said. I, I kept my mouth shut. And the man looked at these dolls and he's thinking, that is so amazing. I can't believe I'm so blessed to have a wife would be so sweet. But then he also was thinking, I guess I was okay. I mean, I, I didn't make her that mad. It must be that we're just really blessed. And he said, thank you. That is so amazing. And he also said, what's the money for? She said, well, that's from the sale of the other dolls. <laughs> so that's a different kind of blindness, wouldn't you say? That's the kind of blindness where you just can't possibly imagine it because it didn't enter your mind. You weren't looking at the right things. So it is with the disciples here in Matthew chapter 5. If you still have your finger on Matthew chapter 5, you look at the Beatitudes from the beginning. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. The mob is around there. Maybe some of them heard it. But he was saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they will be filled. And then he says, Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for the kingdom of heaven is there. This is not going well. (laughs) I don't imagine the disciples were really hearing all this. They were thinking about other things. Because as you know, when he started talking about salt and light, you're going to be the salt of the earth, you're going to be the light of the world. These guys were actually in it because they believed he was the Messiah, but they also thought that he was coming with power, that this was going to turn into you know, an opportunity, really, for them to sync up and be part of something bigger. How do we know this? Because if you look at any of the Gospels, any of them, you'll find at least two examples in each one that talks about how the disciples disputed amongst themselves who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Give you an example is at the table... I am not making this up. Luke chapter 22, verse 24. At the table, the Last Supper, there was a dispute among them as who would be considered the greatest. And he said unto them, The kings and the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger, and who governs as though he serves. And he goes on. And this happens again and again in the Gospels. But here in Matthew, as these disciples are hearing it, perhaps early on in the ministry, did they really hear what Jesus was saying when he's talking about the way up in the kingdom is actually to take the way down? Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name? I don't think so. What did they hear? So look at salt, for example. What does salt do? In the Old Testament, if you pull up the Bible here, you're going to find that it preserves. Salt preserves. Leviticus 2.13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. And all your offerings shall you also offer salt. It's also a healing power. In 2 Kings 2, Elisha, who is on behalf of Elijah going to a people, 
they talked about the spring of water that was dead and was killing people. And he went to this spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I've healed this water, and from now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. It's a healing power as well. And in Ezekiel 16, and he says, And as for your birth, the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's what salt meant to these guys. They're thinking preservative, healing power. And so when Jesus is saying you're the salt of the earth, he's saying you are going to be out there healing. You're going to be out there preserving. You're going to have value to the community. The next thing he called them was light. He said you are going to be essentially spiritual illumination. You'll be spiritual illumination for all the peoples. To this day, the Jews believe that they are the chosen ones to spiritually enlighten the world. That's what the scripture tells us. It tells us that they are the ones to guide and to show us the way to the Father. Unfortunately, without the Messiah, you can't get to the Father. There is no sacrificial system anymore. I have set your iniquities before you, says Psalm 90, verse 8, and the secret sins in the light of your presence. The light exposes sin. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding. It gives people wisdom. But the path of the righteous is like the night of the dawn, says Proverbs 4.18, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The scriptures go on about how the light illuminates the path for all. So that's what these guys heard. And they thought probably, of course, if we're in the leadership team, we're going to be enlightening and salting the world for a long time. It's going to work out great. The thing they probably didn't hear, and I think we all need to hear, is that it's a logical if-then statement, actually, when he says you're going to be salt and light. What he's saying is you're going to be salt and light but it's only when you identify with me. And I think we can grasp this. We have all of the New Testament. Because what in us is good? What does Romans 7, 18 say? In me, nothing good dwells, right? We understand that. We get that as Gentiles brought in, that we are not by ourselves special, except that God would make us special. But John brilliant man that he is, helps us understand the love of the Father. In John 17, 21 and 23, he says, he's talking to the Lord as he's praying in the garden, that they would all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be one in us, that, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I've given to them, that they may be one just as we in one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me. And I have loved them just as you have loved me. It's logical that we will be salt and light if we are one in Jesus Christ. But apart from that, if we are not one with Jesus Christ, we will not be. And I wonder if maybe this whole blind spot thing has to do with where we think we are in relationship to him and where we actually are. One other thought to leave you is 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 7. It's not in your notes. We know that we have this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that the power belongs to God and not to us. The salt and light that he puts in us, what he calls us to, how he fills us, that is what's transforming. The jar, not so much. So that is why we're going to focus on the attributes of God here. Because it's about him, it's not about us. We don't want to be blind to our own need for the Holy Father, for Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, working in us and living in us. We don't want to be blind to that. Because if we think we can actually go out and be salt and light, if we think we can transform our community without continually being filled, continually being drawn closer to him, we're very mistaken. So what are these defining attributes? Like I said, the first is truth. Truth that is unchanging. If you've got to bring up God's truth, it is forever unchanging. It's eternal. It does not move. It does not change. It is constant. Psalm 119. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them in truth, for your word is truth. John 1.14, you notice I'm quoting John a lot. He really had this figured out. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Second John 1.2, Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, forever and ever. It's not our truth. It's not our opinion. It's not common sense. It's the truth of the living God in us that's going to work its way out through those jars of clay. The next attribute of God we're going to focus on is love. And we'll get into the different meanings of the word love. I mean, there's agape, filio, eros, all those. But right now, just take the good old American version of love. Love is a verb to God. Everything that God talks about in love has to do with action on his part. He doesn't love as in, I love my people, therefore I'll let them kind of spin around on that blue ball for a while until they figure things out. No, it's, I love them, therefore I will not let them die in their sin. I love them, therefore I'll give them prophets and I'll call them to me, right? I love them, therefore I'll let them be chastised. I'll let them wander in the desert because they need to know their need for me. If you take a look at 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The essence of God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's his identity. And of course, in 1 John three seventeen. but if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's not how God behaves. That's not how, who God is. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. That's 1 John 4, verse 10. In our response, 2 John 1, 6, and this is love that we would walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as if you heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. It just goes on. It's always about doing. Love is always a verb in scripture. It's not, I feel like following Jesus today. It's, I'm following Jesus today because I love him. The next thing is obedience. And obedience, 
you would wonder, why would we bring up obedience as one of God's characteristics? We're just going to touch on it today. But God is a triune being. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And throughout Scripture, you get a picture of how they interrelate with each other. And we're just going to take a really small snapshot of it today. But obedience is a decision. Obedience is not a feeling either. Obedience is not something that we say, I have decided to feel like following Jesus today. No. It's I have decided to follow Jesus. I commit my path to him. Let's take a look at Philippians 2.8. Talking about Jesus. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Of course, the scripture also says he didn't, he didn't take it, uh, he didn't assume that being equal with God meant he could do whatever he wanted. In Luke 22, he says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the morning of his crucifixion. He's sweating blood, and he's saying, well, I will do your will. He's obeying the Father. But in John 16, verse 7, hear this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Who is that helper? It's the Holy Spirit. Why didn't the Holy Spirit just come down, nuke the Romans, reestablish everything, reset the clock? It would make sense to us in our earthly bodies, like, yeah, hello, fix the problem, like set up Judea with the proper kingdom, the sacrifices. But that wasn't the plan of the Father. Even the Holy Spirit obeyed the Father. There's a relationship of mutual submission between all three of the triune beings of the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. They always submitted to one another, and ultimately the Father is the one who had the plan. So you can see that it's a decision to obey. God's nature is to make decisions and move on them, and that's our nature too in him. The last thing is that these things, these words, truth, love, obedience, you're going to find them in Scripture. It's not hard to find them. They're everywhere. I haven't found one yet where it's actually cohesively combined into a threesome here, three words together. But you will find them in pairs continually throughout Scripture, mostly truth and love. So frequently described in pairs. But they all three work in the life of the believer. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. 2 John 1.1 and verse 3 also, to the elder, uh, the elder, to the elect lady and her children, who I love in truth, and not I only, but also those who know the truth. He goes on and says, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. And again, John says in three, third John, to the elder, to the beloved Gaius, who I love in truth. John again in First John three eighteen, little children, let's not love in word or talk, but in deed, in obedience. And by this, we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, love and obedience. And lastly, John 14, but I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. I do as the Father commanded me because I love him. These are all pairs that you're going to find. And last, James 2.8, if you really fulfill the law, you will love your neighbor as yourself. 
Jesus said that. And James requoted it. Again, you get the point. These are things that work together in our lives. Truth, love, and obedience, whether we know it or not. These characteristics of God fulfill his will in our lives. These three legs of a stool in our spiritual walk. Because he empowers us. He equips us. And that's his very nature. And the closer we draw to him, the stronger these three elements are in our walk. So you can imagine what happens if you get a little lopsided. If you're willfully or if you've got a blind spot and you're not paying attention, you can kind of miss out that maybe you're a little strong in the obedience part or a little strong in the truth part, but lacking in the love. What would that look like? Remember that love is a verb. Love is something that acts and does. And what would happen if you were all love? Oh, lovey-dovey. Sloppy agape, they call it. You know, where you're just loving on everybody, but, well, you don't necessarily know your Bible. You don't really know what Jesus said, or you're not paying attention to his commands. What would that look like in your life? You can see how this can go, how people in the church can have such differing views on Political situations, family life, child raising, you name it, finances. How can you have difference of opinion when there's only one truth? And that's because people need to draw into the closeness with Jesus Christ and let him start changing their hearts and minds about things. Becoming salt and light in the community, living as examples because they're drawn close to him and they're salty and they're casting light. So I'm going to skip right quick through what this kind of means for us when it comes to our new identity. Um, what new identity am I talking about? Well, I think already, some of you already know. Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. You all know this. We all know it. What is that newness? Ephesians 4, 20, 21 through 24. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's something that happens up here. When you draw into the presence of God, when you look at his truth, it should be something that you're actively thinking about, that you're actually contemplating. You should be reckoning yourself dead to sin, as Romans 7 says. Reckon yourselves, I'm Romans 6, you should reckon yourselves dead to sin. Think about this. Logically understand. And as a result, Philippians 3.9, or 3.9, and be found in him. In Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, dot, 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 becoming like him, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These are the things that we would aspire to. But unfortunately, we do have blind spots. And we all have blind spots, myself, everybody. We all look for things we want to see. When it comes to the life of the church, how we do church, how we act as church, we need to consider a couple of things. The first is we need to be open to the idea that 
we're not seeing things God's way. We're not drawing close to him. We need to draw closer. But the first step every time in drawing closer to God is we need to confess. That's the first thing. It's an imperative here for action. Oops, I get a little lost. Uh, Yeah, I got ahead. We're just going to keep going because I'm rolling. Okay, move down to number five. What about maintaining effectiveness? Like I said, we've got blind spots, and we need to confess them. The reason being is that we have work to do. In Ephesians 4, let me flip there real quick. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. And verse down, jump down to verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is, head, who is the head, who is Christ. The point of this exercise, of us drawing close to him, salt and light, but the point of us as believers in this church is to build the church up. I know we all want to reach the community. I want to reach the community. I volunteer. Some of you volunteer quite a bit too. I want to reach into the community and be present in people's lives. And I encourage you to do that. But the point of Jesus Christ in our lives, the point of drawing close to him to be salt and light in the world, requires us to build each other up, to stay close as a family, to continue drawing close to the word and encourage each other and stir us up to greater works. We have a connection to maintain, 5C. We have a connection to maintain. Romans 7, for in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man that I am. Who is going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Obvious question. It's rhetorical to us. We understand. We have something we need to maintain in connection to stay close to God. We have to recognize that by ourselves we're not going to do it. So that John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Jesus talking. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. You can do nothing. We have something we need to maintain by drawing close to him for the purposes of building up the church. And it starts by confessing to him that we need to be made fit and we need to draw close to him and we have blind spots. So, like I said, we're going to go really fast. I want you to understand though, I, I, when I go out and I point at you guys and I say, hey, maybe, maybe we have some blind spots about how we minister in the community. Maybe we have some blind spots about how we, we actually perceive the church body and what our purpose is. I'm pointing back with four other fingers. You realize that. Everybody who's ever sat in a pulpit or stood in a pulpit realizes the conviction is up here, even though you might be feeling a little bit. The truth is, we as a church are in historic times. There's nothing like this before. We've been sifted as a little community church. People have left because we haven't worn masks. People have left because we have worn masks. People are upset because we don't have programs. The church has been shaken. And the ones who want to stick around have a chance to reevaluate what the church is really for. Why are we here? Why are we in Chuila? Why are you in Chuila? I know God brought us here, 
How about you guys? What is it we're supposed to be doing to be salt and light? And how are you out there engaging in it? And that's what I want to do in these next sermons. So you can avoid the next three if you want and like bypass the conviction part. But I really want to stir you up. I want to stir all of us up. So the question I'm throwing out is, do you taste like salt? What do you taste like? Would you be convicted in a court of being a Christian if it was outlawed? I always hated that phrase, but it's true. Would you? Would I? Would your friends stand up and say, yeah, definitely that guy's a Christian. I can tell. Well, that should be the case. We should be living it, and we should be speaking it, and we should be loving it out there in the community. And we need to do it together, and we need to build each other up. How are you going to do that? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do to serve this body? Because there's a lot of needs which are coming up and will come up as we move forward, either in teaching, participating in Bible studies. I know it's just studying the Bible, but a lot more happens at Bible studies than just bringing up archaeology and history and stuff. If you get together as believers and you pray and you study the Bible, life is going to come up and you're going to build each other up. And in some cases, some people might actually be convicted and start confessing. By gathering together in his name, studying his word, that will happen. And as we go forward, I'm going to throw out one other thing that's coming up. We're facing kind of a dilemma when it comes to this church and our association with the Evangelical Free Church of America. Okay, Uh, you've heard Lee Kisman talk about it perhaps, our district super. I'm not near as good as explaining what happened. I'll give you the Pete Thompson Cliff Notes version. There's a movement to liberalize this association, and they have forced a decision on us to either accept um, that we can't choose our own pastoral training, that we can't have a district super that believes in a premillennial return of Jesus Christ because they've not allowed it anymore. It's coming up here in the next, uh, I think it's October, we're going to vote as a district as to whether or not we're going to accept this. And then what do we do? Who are we? Do we have to start another 501c3? Do we have to create our own association? You all need to get informed. We need to start training ourselves as to what this doctrinal position is about. Is the rapture real? Will it happen before the, the tribulation period? What is the millennia, millennial reign of Jesus Christ? Be, understand it so that we can reason through this with the word because it's coming on us and pretty soon the association is going to have to decide if they want us or not. That's our position right now is to push it back on them, let them kick us out. But right now we need to realize these things are all happening simultaneously. And then this fall, there's an election going on, if you didn't know, and I am going to address it, okay? As a Christian, you need to understand who you're voting for. I'm not just talking about president. You have to understand that these are times where our country is at a crisis, And there are people who mean evil, and I'm very frank about it. They mean evil for this nation. They do not mean good. And I'll I'll, I'll lay it out for you. I'm not going to name names, but I'll, I'll point out to you where the scripture conflicts with some positions of certain political parties. It's crazy that we would even come to this point where we would think that our nation could go down this path. But here we are, and all this is happening at the same time. So please, are you willing to examine yourself? Are you willing to serve? 
Are you willing to join up and become a member? We're talking about how to make that easier. Um, maybe do confession of faith with the elders instead of a class. We need people to serve and to vote, so we'll work on that together. I want to leave you with Psalm 139. I deliberately left that out. If you can, please turn to your Bible. It's one of my favorite psalms. I hope it's one of yours. This is about your identity in Jesus Christ. It was really instrumental in my life and Joan's life early on in our marriage. It's pretty powerful. In the beginning, it says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. It's a fact. God knows you intimately. He knows me intimately. But at the end, look at this. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, test me, is what it's saying. Actually, physically test me. And know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What is God poking you about? Are you ready to hear his voice? Are you ready to be refined like silver or gold? That's the test of the Old Testament. Are you ready to be refined? Are you ready to step out and serve here in this body, in this community? I'll tell you, I'm ready. I'm ready to move on. And I want you guys to move on with me. New pastor or no pastor. We need to move forward, and it starts with confessing and asking God to sift us. So as the worship team comes up, we're going to get ready for communion here. Let's just bow our heads for a minute and, uh, and pray reflectively before we get started. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you for convicting us and thank you for prompting us. Thank you for drawing us here. Thank you for this place that we have to draw into. We just lift up um, this message and we lift up this time too for communion. We ask you to bless it and ask you to be glorified in it. But I just pray for anybody out here who's, who's been touched by your word and by the conviction of, um, of it. I just pray that they would be spurred onto action, that they would draw closer to you. They would be salt and light. They wouldn't be afraid of their blind spots. They'd be eager to find them so that they aren't unseen anymore. And I just pray that you'd also do this for your glory and to, to bring us closer together as a family and to glorify yourself in this town. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.